Last year, I went and traveled for like six months of the year. I just quit my job and went and traveled. Once went to this restaurant in Japan, and I got to try like fried lizard there and all these kind of like interesting, unique foods. They went to the Galapagos Islands. My whole life, I thought like, you know, it's so exotic. It's somewhere nobody goes to. It must be, cost so much money to be there. And I never thought in my life I'd ever get to this place. There's something about traveling, about being out of your element, that makes you more open to connection with people. On this episode of the Relate podcast, we're looking at relationships forged in those exciting and life-affirming and also sometimes terrifying travel experiences. You'll hear about two young women who bonded over a bus tour that went horribly wrong in Ethiopia. And you'll get some tips on understanding cultural differences from Graham David Hughes a man who has traveled to every single country in the world. You're listening to Relate. You're listening to Relate by Zendesk. Zendesk builds software for better customer relationships. For better customer relationships. I'm Tamara Stanners, and this is Relate by Zendesk. It's a show about relationships, and this time around, it's about relationships in motion. Do you have a travel bucket list? You know, a bunch of places you'd love to go if you had the time and the money? Well, check this out. Graham David Hughes traveled to every single country in the world. Yes, all 193 of them, plus Taiwan and Vatican City and a bunch of other regions. And he did it all without setting foot in an airplane. That's a lot of countries and a lot of cultures to experience. And we wanted to figure out how he did it. So we spoke to Graham David Hughes from his home on his private island in Panama, which he won, by the way, in a reality TV contest. (laughs) Who is this guy? Hello, my name is Graham Hughes. I'm from Liverpool, England, and I am the first, and so far only, person to visit every country in the world without flying. It took four years to complete, and the reason why I wanted to do it, I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons, really. I wanted to prove it could be done. I started in 2009, and at the time there were 192 members of the United Nations, and my job was to get to all of those, plus Taiwan, Kosovo, Western Sahara, Palestine, and Vatican City. I thought I'd get it finished in a year, then I thought I'd get it finished in 18 months, then I thought I'd get it finished in two years, but it ended up taking me four years, and in July of 2011, I still had 16 countries left to visit, and um, unfortunately for me, unfortunately for the people of South Sudan, I guess, South Sudan became the 193rd member of the United Nations, so I was in Australia at the time, and I had to go over to Fiji and New Zealand, and then backtrack all the way back to Africa to tick South Sudan off the list. 
The one country that really surprised me the most was Iran. It was full of the warmest, friendliest, most hospitable people that I met anywhere. And I, I expected a very sort of conservative country where they might not you know, be so friendly unless they're trying to sell you something. But uh, I couldn't have been more wrong. They have this um, saying that I heard when I was over there, which was, always be good to strangers because one day you might be the stranger. And that really stuck with me. I, I love that. For instance, I was I was in the capital of Iran, I was in Tehran, I was trying to get a visa for India. I met a guy in the queue, got chatting, he said, hey, come round to mine tonight, we're having uh, some food, we're having some drinks and stuff. And I thought, wow, okay, I've been invited to a sort of Iranian house party. So I turn up and it's this guy and his mates and there's a couple of girls there and they come in, they take the headdress off and everything. And um, he gets out a bottle of wine and he's like, oh, you know, my, my uncle smuggled this in because Iran is a dry country. It's very hard to get alcohol there. And they look at it and they go, well, how, how do we open it? And I, I, I pull out my Swiss army knife with my, you know, corkscrew in it with this. And I open it up, everyone cheers, we have some wine. And a bit later on, we went to get some kebabs and um, we're walking back to the flat with the, the, to the apartment with these kebabs and uh, one of his mates, a guy called Arzi, he says to me, um, what, Graham, what music have you got on your iTunes? And I was like, oh, you probably won't like it. It's all like British indie rock and roll from the 90s. And he said, oh, have you got any Radiohead? And I'm like, oh my God, I've got all their albums and all their B-sides. And then he starts singing Creep by Radiohead. And all his mates join in. So we're walking along, a little bit tipsy after some wine, eating a kebab, singing Creep by Radiohead in Tehran. And that was like the last thing I was expecting. You sort of learn about cultural norms on the hoof. And I loved Ethiopia. I mean, on the buses in Ethiopia, which was sort of like a cultural norm that I didn't realize, that got in a bit of trouble for actually, is that they don't like opening the windows. They think that if you have your the windows open on the bus, even if it's like 100 degrees Fahrenheit and your, your head is boiling, uh, disease will come in on the wind. So I'm on this bus, <laughs> it's a sort of an eight hour bus journey through the desert and we're having this game of cat and mouse where I keep opening the window and the people around me keep closing it and I'm like, please, I'm sweating, I'm dying here. And there was a woman with a baby and she was really angry at me because she thought that I was giving her baby disease by opening the window. It, it surprised me and irritated me in equal measure, let's put it that way. And here in Panama, I mean, there's some wonderful nuts cultural norms. I mean, first of all, wow, the, the, the people working in the shops here are surly. <laughs> and one of the adorable things that they do here, um, well, I find it adorable, I think other people find it rude, is um, they point with their lips. So you imagine if you nod towards something, they kind of nod and then they, they purse their lips and go like this <laughs> to, to whichever direction um, the, the thing that you need is in, um, which is quite fun as well. So I, I, it's kind of interesting. There's some cultural norms that you, that hit you head on first time you visit somewhere and other things that you know it takes a while for you to sort of pick up on these little like very nuanced things that people do in one place when they might not do in another I learned very quickly that you can't judge people by the actions of their government and I traveled to every country it took me four years a lot about 80 of those countries i had to go through twice for one reason or another and the people that i met everywhere 
were just phenomenal. I mean, I had a couple of run-ins with the police or the authorities now and again when I was crossing borders and things like that. But the people who just came up to me and you know, what little they had, they'll share with me, especially traveling through somewhere like West Africa where people are really poor. Um, and, and they'll still want to hang out with you and be your friend. And I think that's a very human desire is just to have friends and be liked and have a good time and what what I really learned and the, the, the takeaway from all this was like I said traveled for over 1600 days and I wasn't mugged I wasn't robbed I wasn't beaten up I didn't get into a fight I didn't even get ill <laughs> and I think the big takeaway is that the world isn't as scary as it, you've been led to believe The cultural norms in all these places are, are something that I just find absolutely fascinating. I mean, why do we travel? Why do people go and see these places around the world? And it's it's a mixture of reasons. It's, you know, the food, but also it's it's the culture. It's it's being able to immerse yourself in a culture different from your own and, and take away something from that culture for yourself that, you, you know, you carry with you for the rest of your life, whether it's the, the charming way in, in Central Asia, they slightly bow and hold onto their heart while they shake your hand, which is just adorable. Or whether it's somewhere like uh, the South Pacific, where you have to be very respectful to the elders of the of the of the village. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I I don't really collect souvenirs. I guess as I'm traveling, I really just collect experiences and learning about the culture of all these different places was one of the greatest experiences that happened to me on the journey and will probably happen to me in my life, I guess. You can find out more about Graham David Hughes and his amazing round-the-world adventures at theodysseyexpedition.com. And now, if you're inspired to get out from behind your desk and explore the world, but you just don't know quite how to do it with the whole money situation, take a look at this article on our online magazine. It's called 10 Millennials Share Why and How They Ditched Their Jobs and Joined the Gig Economy. You'll find out about several people in this piece who are working while they travel the world. Check it out at relate.zendesk.com. You're listening to Relate. By Zendesk. Zendesk helps your business turn interactions into lasting relationships. So you might remember from Graham David Hughes how he loved Ethiopia, even though his experiences on the buses there left something to be desired. Well, Believe it or not, this next story also features Ethiopian buses, though the characters in the story had way bigger problems than not being able to open a window. Joey Bowie was born in Australia after her parents immigrated from Vietnam. Claire Henning is Canadian but moved to Costa Rica when she was 14. The two women met five years ago when they were studying abroad in Abu Dhabi, but they really got to know each other when they were stuck in the middle of nowhere on a bus in rural Ethiopia. We were actually talking about this last night. We were trying to remember when we first met, and neither of us have any memory of meeting each other for the first time. We pinned it down to probably about the first week of university. Oh, actually, it's 
Coming back to me now, we worked on the student newspaper together. We both went to university together in Abu Dhabi, but we never really... We were friends at that point, but we were more friends because we had friends in common. We hadn't really hung out one-on-one -on -one at that point. Um, she was always cheerful. She's always laughing and smiling. So that's something that stood out. I thought Joey had a very strong personality and she's very on top of things. So in class, for example, she was always the one who knew the reading inside out. Yeah, and we had a fall break coming up and tickets to Ethiopia were pretty affordable. So Claire, Joey, and a group of their friends book a flight to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia's capital city. Addis was really, really hectic. Like, it's a very dense city. Um, that's what I remember. It was really, it was difficult to get a sense of bearings. I felt like I was lost all the time, but it was very, very exciting. They painted their faces, they went to see a soccer match, they explored the local markets and dined on traditional Ethiopian cuisine. And after a few days in Addis Ababa, it was time to head to their next destination, Lalibela in northern Ethiopia, just about 420 miles away. The day before they planned to leave, Joey, Claire, and the rest of their friends stopped in at a flight center to buy their tickets. They knew there were only three flights a week to Lalibela, but they were super surprised to find out that the planes were small, like really small. They could only seat eight people. There weren't enough seats for everyone, so actually one person had to be left out, which was a pretty awkward situation. And so sort of a unanimous decision that Joey would be the one who wouldn't come on the plane with us because she was the last one to join our group. She was going to have to take the bus or do something else. And I could imagine what it would feel like to be, you know, told that you have to go off from everybody else and you're not coming on the plane with us and you sort of, that's it, you're kicked out of the group. It was really concerning. I think the bus trip was supposed to be 14 hours, but I was feeling pretty intimidated at the time. I couldn't make the trip on my own, but then Claire volunteered. I remember thinking, this doesn't seem very fair. I mean, she joined our group a day after everyone else. Why does that mean she doesn't get on this plane? And I'm also down for the adventure. Just, you know, it takes a little longer to get there, but you, get, you have more fun. The next step for Joey and I to take together was to buy bus tickets. And so we ran into someone at a hotel who told us that he could help us get these tickets, that he had a friend who owned the bus company. So the next morning we got up really early and he met us in the hotel lobby and he took us on a bit of a walk. And he seemed really nice. You know, he was showing us around, you know, pointing things out, giving a little bit of a tour of the city we were in. Eventually we go down and we buy our bus tickets. He takes us down, he puts us on the bus. It's much more of a minivan than a bus. It was definitely not in good shape. It was really old, you know, rusty, scratched up. And I remember thinking that everybody getting onto the buses were men. And that was pretty scary. I kept thinking, uh, I'm not sure that this is an appropriate thing for women to do or a safe thing for women to do. Like after I came back from my trip and I talked to a friend of mine from Ethiopia, she said my dad would never let me take one of those public buses. I can't believe you did that. But they didn't have much of a choice. Their flight back to Abu Dhabi left from Lalibela. So if they didn't get there, and soon, their trip was going to get even more complicated. So they get on this tiny crowded bus and started off down the dirt road on their journey. It was Joey and Claire's first chance to really get to know each other. So it really was a bonding moment when we were sitting there on this bus in the middle of nowhere, gossiping about the boys we like. We did talk 
you know, very personally, quite intimately. I remember learning about her romantic history, this guy that she was involved with at school, um, the things that he had done for her that I thought were cute, I remember. And something I really like about Joey is how excited she gets for other people. So if I come to her with really good news or, you know, the guy I liked finally talked to me, <laughs> she's able to be genuinely really excited and happy for you. Yeah, so we were told that it was supposed to be, you know, four hours and then we'll transfer. And our first clue that something wasn't right was as soon as we pulled out, everyone started opening up their wallets and giving the bus driver money. And we thought, that's strange. Because we already did. We paid, you know, that other guy. Um, and their response basically was, who is that other guy? We have nothing to do with that other guy. But he didn't speak English. So there's a lot of sort of hand gestures going on, but we got the message of, you need to buy your ticket. So I guess that's the moments when things got really scary and we figured out that we had been scammed. 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 Also, more importantly, we had no idea if it was the right bus or not and where we were going. And then less than an hour later, maybe 40 minutes later, the bus pulls into this parking lot. It's this dusty, dry parking lot. And the bus stops and the doors open and everyone gets out of the bus. That's it. This is the final stop. And then we realised the situation was much more out of our control than we had originally thought because we didn't know where we were. Nobody could understand us, and we were both just really frightened. It was pretty deserted. There weren't many buildings around that we could see, you know, that we could imagine going in to get help, and we had started to attract a lot of attention. We were the only women that we could see in the area, and the only foreigners. We were... At extremely conspicuous. You know, I'm Asian. There's not a lot of Asians in Ethiopia. Claire is blonde and blue-eyed. Um, and there is not a lot of that in Ethiopia either. And people were staring at us, just these two girls. And I felt very vulnerable. I didn't feel safe. And we're going around asking questions. And so we attract enough attention that this crowd starts to gather around us. And some people started to tell us, oh, you can come with me. Like, come in my car. I'll take you to Lalibela. We thought, there's no way. Like, we're not getting in a car with a stranger. I just remember standing there, there's all these people around us and sort of grabbing at us and trying to tug us in one direction and tug us in the other direction. And Joey's usually so good at controlling situations. And in this case, she couldn't do that. And I could see that Joey was frustrated at it and also afraid. And I felt the same way. I remember Claire turning to me and saying, it's going to be okay. You know, it always works out. So this is going to work out. Um, it'll be okay. And I was really mad at her when she said that because I thought, well, how is it going to be okay? We have to do something. We have to have a solution or um, take action for it to be okay. We can't just hope it will be. So we're both standing there and we're in this circle of men who are all around us trying to give us directions and convince us to go into their car and who knows what else. And I see these two men, turns out they're from Spain, so like they're quite obviously foreigners and they've got backpacks on and they've got the hiking boots and I see them walking across the parking lot and Joey and I look at each other we're like those those are the people that we're traveling with so we kind of like scurry over to them and ask them you know where are they going they were also trying to get to Lalibela they had gone off track because they got scammed into getting onto the bus that they were on um, and so we all teamed up and then out of nowhere this like scruffy haired hitchhiker dude shows up and he's like where are you guys going we're like oh we're going to Lalibela he's like cool yeah can I come along and we're like yeah sure it's another like lost tourist he can join our group you know at this point we're open to anybody who's lost 
After some tense negotiations, they finally found a driver who spoke a bit of English, and he was willing to take them all the way to Lalibela. We felt pretty happy at that point. Um, we felt safe, like we knew there was a secure way to get to Lalibela. Things were going well, but that feeling didn't last very long because the driver... He had agreed to be their private driver and take them all the way to Lalibela. But after only a few minutes, he pulled over and picked up a few people standing on the side of the road. This was not part of the deal. There was a heated argument. Joey, Claire, the Spaniards, and the Israeli hitchhiker got off the bus, took their packs off the roof, and told the driver they'd find a different way to Lalibela, and they weren't going to pay him. The driver eventually gave in and kicked off the extra passengers. And the trip continued. But then, after about five miles, he stopped again to pick up more people. They piled into the van. Joey and Claire and their new friends got off again in protest, and the dance continued. This happened several times. So it became really clear that he had never meant to take us the whole way. But because we pushed back and because we didn't pay him up front, eventually he was pushed into actually driving to Lalibela. Then he said, okay, well, if I'm going to make this journey, then I have to eat. I have to have this like break to, to eat. So he stopped in another town. Um, and then he came back chewing these leaves. Um, I think he had a bag of it beside him as he drove. Those leaves he bought at the gas station are called cut. And people who chew cut say it gives them feelings of well-being and euphoria, but it can also make them restless and manic. Not great if you're trying to concentrate on driving. He wasn't responding very well, and he was just kind of dazed. Um, so then we realized that he was high. He narrowly missed hitting several cows. And to make matters worse, they were driving through the mountains, steep, curving roads with no guardrails to prevent them from going over the edge. So Claire and Joey and the others in the car are nervously looking at one another and debating whether or not to say something. And eventually the Israeli hitchhiker you know, tells them, OK, pull over for a little bit. So then the Israeli hitchhiker starts joking about it, saying like, oh, you know, how hard is it to drive this van? Like, how long have you been driving for? I can't believe I'm paying you this much money to drive. I could do this job. So they just swap places. So he crawls in the back, he stretches out over the back seat and falls asleep, and we don't hear from him for the next four hours. You know, we completely forget about him. Then he drove us all the way to Lalibela. We were just happy and kind of shocked that we actually made it. And we got there in the middle of the night, and we hadn't booked a hotel or anything. So we're wandering around trying to find somewhere to stay. And we find this hotel, and just as we're checking in, someone walks behind me and, like, grabs me. So I freak out at this point. Like, this is the time we're going to die, right? We've made it this far. We turn around, and it's these three guys that we know who happen to be in Lalibela staying in the same hotel as us. I remember on that trip thinking Joey's going to make a great lawyer one day because she's so clear in what she wants and when it's obvious that someone's trying to rip her off, she's just not going to accept it and she'll argue with them and she'll say, no, this isn't right. She responds in an incredible way to crises or emergencies or just like vulnerable situations. So that's um, something I learned through Claire on this trip and that I still really value.
That's it for Relate this time around. In two weeks, we'll have an episode for you on parenting. We've got this amazing piece on a woman who raised her son largely from prison and the story of a biker group in New York City that helps deliver milk to new moms. (laughs) I just think that's so sweet. (laughs) In the meantime, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. That way, you'll get the next episode automatically. For more articles on connecting to your customers in deeper ways, visit relate.zendesk.com. And if you want to explore technology built to improve your customer interactions, head over to zendesk.com for a free trial. I'm Tamara Stanners. Talk to you soon. Music.